Welcome to Everyday Drinking, presented by the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm your host, Jason Wilson. It's late on a Tuesday night, and I've just opened a bottle of Yellowtail. Ugh. It's worse than I remember. I'm always surprised how often this bottle ended up at parties I went to, you know, a decade ago, 15 years ago. You'd go to the house and there was this big bottle of Yellowtail Shiraz, like I'm drinking right now, and it just tasted like straight up cough syrup. What do you think? Pretty bad. <laughs> what does it taste like? Mm. Vanilla. <laughs> really? That's it? I don't... I... I uh... The words fail you? Mm-hmm. That's my friend David. I dragged him over to taste this Shiraz with me. Tastes like unpleasant wine. Yeah. Tastes like it needs ice cubes, actually. <laughs> but can you believe how popular this was 10 years ago? No. I don't think I believed it 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. But so... I think this is what people think about when they think about Australian wine. Yes, it is. The yellowtail gets worse the more that I drink it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, we're drinking the Shiraz, but I mean, and that's what you think about, right? Shiraz and Chardonnay, pretty much, right? With with, uh, Australian... Yellowtail, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to open up what I think is... The new wave of Australia, right? And so the the thing about the the, the the yellowtail was it was there was a kangaroo on the label, the roo. There was always those bad ads on television. I think there was like a bad Super Bowl ad. This is a kangaroo. If you see a roo at a party, it's a good party. Cause that yellowtail, we believe in fun. Okay, so you had these critter wines. So what I'm about to open here is kind of the new wave of. Australian wines. They still have a critter on the label. This is this is Piggy Pop. It's a it's a 2020 Pet Nat made of Nero de Avila, which is a Sicilian grape, and Mataro, which is Morvedra, which is you know obviously from the Rhone Valley. These are like grapes you don't think of at all in Australia. This is made in um, McLaren Vale, and this is from uh, uh, Wildman Wine. You may also recognize Wildman's other cult pet nat, a cloudy blend of red and white grapes called Astro Bunny. And so I'll pop it open right now. It's well carbonated. Pet nat, a little frothy. This is not what I think of when I think of Australian wine. This is not what you think of when you think of Australian wine. No. Although, as we're going to learn in this episode, uh, in Australia, that's what they think of about Australian wine. This is a pretty kind of typical hip wine in Australia these days, but... uh, we still need to be educated a little bit. So what do you think of this? After the Shiraz takes a moment. <laughs> takes a moment, yeah. <laughs> like mouth shock. Re- readjust my palate. <laughs> it does take a second to wash that out, I'll tell you. But this is doing it. Yeah. It's fresh. I can drink this in a lot of quantity. Yeah. And so it's... This is like... As you would say, it's nice. smashable wine. Very much so. Yeah. 
but yeah, I think we're going to learn in this episode, you know, what's really happening in Australia. And of course, we don't, we're not in a position to go to Australia uh, because of the pandemic. Australia is not letting people actually in and out. So there's no way to go. So in this episode, we're going to go up the, the Jersey Turnpike to Jersey City, and we're going to spend some time at uh, an Australian wine bar called Frankie. And I'm going to meet Juicebox Beth there, and we're going to have a little tasting session of what's really happening in Australian wine. <laughs> and then we're going to talk to um, my friend and wine writer, uh, Rachel Signer, who uh, is uh, based in South Australia, in Adelaide. She makes wine there, husband makes wine there, and uh, she is the editor of a very important natural wine magazine called Pipette. And she has a memoir coming out in the fall called You Had Me at Petnet. So we're going to hear from Rachel about how she ended up in Australia and her journey into natural wine. So this whole episode is about Australia and more specifically probably Americans and how they interact with Australian wines. Since David and I are sitting in Jersey, roughly 10,000 miles from Australia, I figure we should start off by hearing from someone down under. So I called my friend Adam Colette who runs a wine school in Perth and is co-owner of Sky Wine, a lo-fi organic winery in Margaret River. It was pretty early in the morning in Western Australia, but Adam took our call. Oh, everybody, my name is Adam Collette. I'm a wine merchant living in West Australia and I run a wine school called the School of Wine. I asked Adam to talk about how the American perception of Australian wines doesn't always mesh with reality. I was guilty of that. You know, when I came here seven years ago, I knew I loved the country, but I, I said, I'm going to the wrong place. I don't like the wines and all. They're big, high octane, high alcohol, peppery Shirazes, and Chardonnay that looks like pineapple juice. So when I got here, I found out that most Australians have gone off of that about a decade ago. You know, they realized the, that's more for the export market. They, they're focusing now on the more boutique re regions of Margaret River, Adelaide Hills, Geelong, Mornington, Tasmania. So they've done a whole 180 from the wines that I think we knew and drank in the States, and they're more focused on the cool climates these days. I think for the longest time, everyone thought, you know, Shiraz, Cabernet Chardonnay, and that is still very prominent. But a lot of the winemakers in uh, South Australia are identifying that, hey, look, we're in dry conditions pretty much all the time. You know, Australia's on fire most of the year. So they've realized that they need to pull out these water-consuming grapes like Cabernet. And like they're putting, trying to put a square peg through a round hole. So they look to the Mediterranean climates of Nerodabla, um, Sangiovese, they're growing these very drought-resistant, hardy wines. I think the cool one, the thing you got to watch for, uh, is Grenache. So uh, for the longest time, Grenache was the most planted grape in Australia. We don't realize that. But there was a root pool system in the 1970s, pulled that out and put it in Shiraz. What survived now is producing elegant, finessed, beautiful, um, Southern Rhone-inspired wines. So keep an eye out for Grenache. I think that's probably the, the comeback wine of the 21st century. If we can get American consumers off of the usual, you know, it's got to be an Australian Shiraz um, bent. You know, I think there's a lot of undiscovered wines here. And yet the image of Yellowtail and its ilk still persist. Hi. Hey. Uh, want to pet my roux? Sure, I'll pet your roux. <laughs> a lot of those critter wines kind of destroyed our brand over there, and Americans are not still quite sure about it. I don't think there's ever really been the same traction that we had before. I don't think we've gotten back to that level yet where there's an interest in Australian wine. So I just, like yourself, you know, you went out to a, uh, a natural wine bar that served a lot of Aussie wines. 
we're not a one grape country or two grape country, not just Shiraz and Chardonnay. We have a whole range of things to offer and the winemakers are really putting effort into making cool, balanced, um, flavorful wines that speak to our country. So yeah, go out and explore and drink more Aussie wines. I'm Rachel Signer, and I am from the U.S., but I'm now based in a very small rural town called Basket Range in South Australia, so that's near Adelaide, and I founded a magazine called Pipette, all about natural wines, and in October, um, my book, You Had Me at Petnat, will be on shelves across the United States. So I have had the pleasure of of seeing some early an early draft of this book, and I'm very excited for it to come out. And you know, something struck me in the in the original preface. I don't know if it's the same, but you said that you know, as of five years ago, you'd never heard of natural wine, and in this strange category of alcoholic beverage, when you <laughs> took that job, changed your life. That you you tasted this strange rosé pet nat from France, and it uh, set off a quote, wild woman inside me who, though I didn't know it at the time, was dying for a new existence. So why don't you tell us, like, how did you get into the whole natural wine thing? <laughs> take, us, take us back to the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And now it's more like, I would say, seven years. I guess seven I years. started writing that preface two years <laughs> ago. You know, obviously a book takes a little while. Of um, so yeah, it was, I think, 2013, 2014, the cusp is is when I became aware that there was this strange category of beverage called natural wine or vin nature because it was definitely a bit um, centered upon France at the time. And I was working as a daytime server in um, Renard in the Wythe Hotel. So that was Andrew Tarlow's restaurant at the time. And um, it was like, definitely like a destination for drinking natural wine or artisanal wine. Um, I think back then they were definitely considered as part of the same category, low intervention, artisanal wine, natural wine. Um, I think that separation came a bit later. Um, but at the time it was revolutionary to me that people who were individuals made wine, like not brands. That distinction was really new and really interesting, as well as the kind of obsession with organic and with not adding yeast and with not filtering and with adding zero or no or little um, sulfites. And all of that to me was totally amazing. And people often ask me if I grew up drinking wine um, or going to like restaurants or being into food and not at all. It, it's still strange to me, but something about tasting natural wine really triggered my palate and my intellect at the same time. And I just, I don't even really remember like deciding I'm going to go in this direction. But when I moved on from that job, I went into retail because I pretty much only wanted to work in natural wine. I wanted to learn and taste and drink. 
Wow, that's so. A lot of people at that time were getting into natural wine, but you made it like your life's work, though. I mean, that's it's a little more of a deep dive. Yeah, and it's it's um, I'm the kind of person if something does not interest me, I literally can't even be bothered kind of but if it interests me um in certain things like uh learning language learning romance language and um I think definitely learning about wine once I realized there was this whole universe out there all these different grape varieties that were related or which had kind of native homes um the whole Appalachian system the histories of regions once I became aware that I could learn about all of this in a self-motivated way, so I started going to trade tastings, um, and I started reading nonstop everything from Jancis Robinson, all, basically all the wine literature that was out there at the time. Uh, and then I, I could start writing about it at the same time. That that really drew me in, and I just kind of yeah, I did make it my life. So I was writing for Food Republic at the time. Um, I was actually writing about food first and then discovering wine um, had me in this position where I was like a junior freelance writer at a food publication and they didn't really have anyone covering wine. So I was like, how about I do that? Yeah. So kind of took it from there. And you could kind of make it what you wanted it to be as well, since they didn't have anybody doing it, right? You could cover the wines you wanted to cover. Yeah. Yeah, well, sort of. I think I still had to frame it in a way that would appeal to their audience. And from the beginning, you know, that's kind of the origins of me wanting to start my own publication was mm -hmm. me really wanting to actually write about one thing and them saying, mm, that's not quite going to work. Why don't you frame it in this way. And I totally understand, like an editor always has the publisher and the audience to kind of answer to. Um, but as I grew more and more like adamant about natural wine and, and increasingly aware of really how much natural winemakers were risking to do what they believed in, how much the um, their lifestyles were about conviction and family and tradition um, and how much they'd had to fight for what they have, I became, I think, less willing to work with mainstream publications. And so yeah. that, that made me eventually start my own thing. So I mean, one thing that really interests me about your story is that, okay, so you went to Paris, right? And for a century or more, you know, creative young people have left the United States and gone to Paris. I think you quote a movable feast in, in the front of your book, in fact, right? And so there is this sense that, you know, you're an artist, you're a writer, you're a chef, you go to Paris to like broaden your world. And so it really makes a lot of sense that, you know, you went there for natural wine because that, I mean, what was, what was one of the more creative movements at that time, I guess, you know, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense. Well, um, I think part of it does have to do with the, the book, A Movable Feast, um, which my older brother gave me when I was 20 and I still have that copy. I take it everywhere with me. It's sort of a, an old nomad impulse. Like if I go to Europe for a month, I bring it in case I stay in Europe, then at least I have my book. I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing. So I, <laughs> I have books I was, like that. I know <laughs> you have, I have to have books. them with you. Yeah, yeah, you, you do. Can't you do. Think yeah, unless yeah. they're near you. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. The one. 
Um, and I think it's such an, a beautiful and simple book. And, you know, I, I know Hemingway is a little bit of a cliche and, and that's fine, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I think I was living in Spain and I was, I was blown away. I was 20. I was living in Spain. I was blown away by the way, decadence was a part of everyday life. The way they have this like big pastry at 11 a.m., this big lunch at three o'clock and the siesta and then going out at 11 p.m. to stay out until three, the, the deprioritization of work. I mean, it went against everything I'd been taught. Like my middle class sensibilities were just crushed. And I loved that. And that is what I had been looking for in a way. And I remember traveling to a small village and seeing the retirees sitting outside in this mountain town, not far from Valencia, having black olives and red wine for breakfast. And I was just blown away. I was like, that's the meaning of life. That is literally what you work toward to be able to do that. And at the same time, I was reading that copy of A Movable Feast. And I had a friend who was studying fine arts in Paris, a friend from university. We were all doing our junior kind of year abroad. So I went and visited her and she had come out as gay and was like dressing to the nines and, you know, sketching in the Louvre every morning. And she had just gone through this radical transformation of being kind of Europeanized and living in Paris. It's like a virtual, it's a museum. It's just stunning. And there's history everywhere. Um, so that really touched me, but I couldn't speak a word of French and it was really embarrassing. And, um, you know, like the desire to return and fully appreciate the lifestyle of the French stayed with me for a long time. And it was 10 years before I went back. And I went back as a wine journalist on kind of a lark. I got invited to go to Burgundy and I turned that into a trip kind of what I think a lot of sommeliers and wine journalists dream of, you know, the right phone call put me in the right hands. And I was in these amazing cellars of these incredible estates. Um, they were not so-called natural winemakers, but I think that trip really made me, it made me understand France outside of Paris and their connections as well. And the oldness, like the, the way that wine is ingrained into culture there, um, the history, but going sort of more forward. Um, yeah, I think Paris has been the vanguard of natural wine for some time. Other people might point to Copenhagen and obviously the Danish sensibility with the way design is a part of their culture definitely has to do with where natural wine is today. Um, you mentioned, you just spoke to Christian Cheetah, like he's one of a few winemakers whose careers I think have been deeply affected or launched basically by Noma and by that association. Totally, totally. Um, and we talked about that as well. Like Noma yeah. was, I mean, so would you say, I mean, Noma kind of, it put natural wine on the map or I mean, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but it did it legitimize it in some way. Yeah, I think so. I think in Paris, it was being really promoted in somewhat more insular circles. Like there were bistros that, you know, if you knew about it, you knew about it. But Le Baratin will never be as famous as Noma. Like, no, you know, Red yeah. Z Rene Redzepi really got, 
he's driven and he wanted Noma to be on the world map in a way that I think, I think the, the Parisian scene was a little quieter. And um, definitely, I think Noma has done so much for natural wine. Um, I've, I've never eaten there, but like everywhere else in Copenhagen, they get things once. that you don't, you did? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I went to lunch there once. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds nice. Um, <laughs> it was lovely. I've had drinks on the rooftop. <laughs> don't know if that counts, but um, yeah, I, I mean, the, um, the thing, the thing about Paris though, kind of going back to your question and the, one of the reasons I wanted to be there is that you can drink things in Paris you just can't find anywhere else, and they are cheaper. Um, so things like Aurelien Lefort, who's always a benchmark for me, and he makes sometimes like 10 barrels, and they don't often really make it outside of Europe very far except to Japan. Um, but if you're in Paris, that's like you can find it. Uh, so it's, it's a great place to be. Um, it's very international. You know, I, I write in my book about the challenges of making friends with Parisians. But that said, I met some really like awesome Parisians. And, you know, I, I know it's a very difficult kind of culture to break into. And I didn't probably stay long enough for that. But I think there's just wonderful people there doing awesome things, to be honest. But then I guess you weren't in Paris very long before your whole life changed on some crazy wine trip. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, that's the lead into this book, which was originally meant to be a book about me moving to Paris and opening a wine bar. And that was what I was pitching um, when I left New York. And that's what I thought I was going to write about. And it didn't happen. Um and that's, you know, the book is about this kind of happy accident of meeting someone. Um, but it, it did happen. I had a very life-changing trip to the Republic of Georgia. Um, life-changing because I met someone. And because I'll just never forget it. I'll just never forget the, the families we met and the, the culture of food and wine there. It is like no other. And I think it has forever made me think about wine in a different way, the wines that I make, the wines that I drink, everything. And um, yeah, so meeting someone there just before I moved to Paris with my two suitcases, no visa, and a really shitty Airbnb at the Périphérique. Yeah, that, that, that did make everything go in a very different direction. And the result is that I live in Australia. No. <laughs> so can we say who, who you met <laughs> can we yeah that's fine i think um i know I, I i'm guessing a lot of the readers who do pick up the book already kind of know some things about how my life went um so yeah my my husband anton um has been making wine here for um a while um his first vintage on and his here own is, was here is where just seven here in is... south australia okay yep Yes. And we live on a pretty large kind of property um, surrounded by valleys. And we have planted 6,000 vines over the past two years. So the winery was previously what you might call like a negociant project, working with um, just three or four different growers in the Adelaide Hills area. And 
now it's becoming more of an estate, I guess. So yeah, 6,000 vines. We've got Trousseau, um, Chardonnay, uh, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, <laughs> Sangiovese, mm, Garganega, and Nebbiolo, and Gamay. Wow. Not, yeah. Not the, not the grapes you'd normally think of in Australia, really, or, or many people don't think of them. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. But we're in a, a very cool, rainy microclimate um, yes. in an area which is already known as a cool climate wine region. Um, so yeah, a lot of people in the hills grow Chardonnay and Pinot um, as opposed to Syrah and this is or a- a- Adelaide Hills. Is that was? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're in the Adelaide Hills. It's a fairly large area um, yeah. just to the east of Adelaide. Yeah. So we've just been hand hoeing the vines to clear the the weeds that have grown there over the warm season. And now we're entering the wet season. So they'll basically um, accumulate a whole new layer of weeds, which we'll then have to remove in the spring. (laughs) Um, But I've also been out in the Chardonnay vineyard, um, which is in theory, the one I'm in charge of. And I've been tossing out oats, lupins, and peas. And hopefully those will grow as kind of like a a cover crop and they'll Uh provide nitrogen in the soil and also prevent some of the nasty weeds from growing. Now you've gone from journalist to magazine publisher to now you're making your own wines, Persephone wines, right? So, uh, and how many vintages have you had? I just did my fourth vintage. Okay. That's right. It was just harvest because it's, it's fall yeah. in Australia. We're in so, autumn. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So how, how did it go? Opposite. This year was amazing. Um, after two really lean vintages due to basically weather, um, we had like a La Nina year and it was cool and rainy throughout the growing season. Um, and that was really excellent for the grapes. I know rain is often portrayed as a problem if it happens during the growing season, but I think spraying before the rain sort of prevents any problems from occurring and the fruit was just stunning and there was like plenty of it we actually had to go out and buy some more barrels um Mm -hmm. so the wineries are full the vintage was great i made chardonnay i made um quite a little bit of syrah which i've been blending a little bit with chardonnay and i made quite a lot of gamay and Pinot Gris that fermented carbonically in Amphora for about five weeks. So what has it been like to go from, you know, reporting and observing and writing about wine to making it? I mean, what's been the biggest challenge, difference, eye-opening thing about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I do not really consider myself a winemaker. Um, I mean, obviously my Still, wine after is... After four vintages. I don't. Yeah, no, yeah. I really, I, my wine is available. Like it, it is sold commercially. Um, yeah. However, it feels like I'm cooking in my own kitchen. <laughs> like that's what making wine feels like. Like I have a friend in there. We have music on. It's really relaxed. Um, the amount is really low. That The stakes are sort of low, I guess. I don't know if I would say that. I mean, I I do want the wines to turn out well, but I just, it's all based on intuition. 
tasting, feeling process. Um, like the means are just as important as the end. So even if it seems like it would be easier to use a machine distemmer, I, I don't, I don't like machines. They're noisy. I don't like being in the hectic space, um, where all the machines are located. So everything I do is about making it like a fun, easygoing process, the same way it would be if you had a friend over to make dinner. And I think that actually results in really beautiful wines. They're all really delicate. Um, the Red Sea, basically four days of maceration. And um, I mean, they are light, but they're definitely red wines. Um, and I just, yeah, I love it. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't change anything. But I guess being, I guess being a journalist and talking to winemakers must have helped me. Um, but it's not like I'm referencing interviewing winemakers when I'm in there making wine. Mm -hmm. It's very, very much a blank, blank state, like a blank mind. And just, you know, thinking about producing the most varietal character of the, the grapes. The region where you live in Adelaide, I mean, for me as someone who doesn't know nearly as much about natural wine as you, I mean, it's, it strikes me as like, there's Loire Valley, there's Austria, maybe there's Sicily. I mean, but Adelaide Hills is probably one of the most important areas for natural wine, I think in the world. Right. And so do you have, is there a lot going on your neighbors, you know, the community there, like, is it very, I don't know, experimental, challenging, you know, invigorating that mm -hmm. kind of stimulating. Yeah. This region is so dynamic and exciting, and I touch upon it in my book because I actually tell the origin story of natural wine in Australia, which features my husband, Anton, and Tom Showbrook and James Erskine, and um, someone called Sam Hughes, and they really shook up the wine world um, just over 10 years ago now. And, um, but since then, I think it's been a really slow climb. And it, it has been definitely in the past few years that there's been this dramatic kind of wave of new producers coming onto the scene around here. So I think often the pattern is someone comes here and works for like one or two years for somebody that's more established, and then they set up their own shed. I mean, everybody makes wine in a shed. Um, <laughs> like a shed that you would keep agricultural, you know, like equipment in. That's that's what people make wine in. Yeah. And so, yeah, we've got um, James Madden making Scintilla, which hopefully will start to be exported. One of the really beautiful, interesting wineries here. We've got the other right, um, which is exported. Um, I mean, there's like eight totally organic sulfur free wineries right here it's pretty unusual it's yeah. and yeah. um every year there's people coming up so the joke at my husband's restaurant is like everybody is a winemaker and that's literally true the chefs made wine in my shed the manager started her own winery this year um even like the servers and the um, the woman who runs the cellar door on the weekends, like they've <laughs> ev literally everybody is making wine. It was hilarious <laughs> during vintage because we're all working there. I held out on Fridays and we all look like her. We have grape skin stained hands as we're pouring wine for people. 
Like, <laughs> sorry if my hand is shaking. I just like pressed a ton of gamay. Hope you don't mind. Um, so there's new people. But the people drinking the it are like, I make wine too, so it doesn't matter, right? It's like <laughs> Yeah, probably. Um, it is a hangout for winemakers, definitely. Yeah. So um, this area is amazing, but it was not, it was not always like this. I, and Adelaide is known as a slightly more culturally conservative area in, in some ways. And I, I think that there was hesitancy in embracing natural wine. And there still is like our biggest market in Australia would be Sydney. Um, and then maybe Hobart, um, which is the main city in Tasmania. Um, but also like Perth and, and Melbourne have really dynamic scenes for, for drinking natural wine. Um, so it's sort of new. Like, you know, the, the nearest town to us, it has this, it has the, the pizza bar that has um, the Okota Barrels wine. And then mm -hmm. there's the, um, you know, the cafe and the bakery, which does amazing sourdough bread. That's all new. It was like a tumbleweed town six years ago. Um, so the change has been really recent, but it's very exciting. You've had this magazine now for a few years and you've been observing this. You have this book. I mean, do you ever think about like how popular this has become and how i don't know it's like on everybody's lips natural wine you know it's it's kind of become mm -hmm. it's become something probably it never was meant to be right i mean it's like yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna um try to mince words too much because i actually please have, don't please don't yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I have sort of strong feelings about it um Look, I think it's been really interesting in the past year seeing these kind of like micro scandals erupt in the natural wine world um, because it points out what happens when a movement who, which had ethics at its core, and by ethics I mean organic farming, environmentalism, treating your workers properly, um, not being overly capitalistic and instead prioritizing, you know, the human capital, the environmental capital, that was once the core of the movement. Um, but also like partying and, and making beautiful wine, let's be honest, it was all part of it. And it became something really heavily branded and really um, mainstream and, you know, Bon Appetit hiring someone who identifies with natural wine as their, as their wine editor, um, you know, articles coming out in mainstream population. What is natural wine? 10 talking points. Um, <laughs> and then also um, shops opening up in small towns across the U.S. I mean, the, the, I've been shocked at some of the places that have begun stocking pipette and they just look wonderful they, they look like really excellent businesses in like outside of major cities and that has been really um surprising and i think wonderful providing people with natural wine in places where it was not available and so i'm not saying the growth is necessarily a bad thing however i think that the way information is spread and the susceptibility to branding that is kind of ingrained into American culture. And also I think the effects of social media have resulted in these like rapid rises to fame that 
ultimately bring a crash and realizations that something was not ethical or that it was maybe a bit smoke and mirrors or just a bit of a fad. Um, and I do not think that that reflects on the movement at large. I think there's way too many established and up and coming makers who have really been taking their time and really doing what they believe in, in a, with longevity and sight and who do treat their workers well and who do prioritize um, proper farming and all the, the main things that we believe in for natural wine. However, it, the, the fact is when something grows very quickly, it just becomes kind of capitalistic and it loses its original kind of core. Um, but is that depressing yeah. to you? I mean, you know, as some, or, or is it just... Just, kind of, just how it goes with any creative movement, basically. I, I think, think about uh, music yeah. also and like what happened with the digitization of music and like there will never be like they, they don't make it like they used to. Ultimately, everything is <laughs> you so sound produced. old now. Yeah, you sound I'm, old. I am old. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm old. Yeah, like they it's true. They don't make it like they used to. I'm I'm old enough to say that because music was really something else in the in the like 90s, basically. And um then again, there are a lot of artists coming out who I think are really interesting. Um I think there's I think things come around is kind of what I'm saying. Um, you know, you could point to the art world and probably talk about things in a similar way. So, no, I don't think there's any reason to really be a pessimist. And the people that I know here, the producers, like in the Adelaide Hills, who are making natural wine, I think people live so radically. Um, they're growing their own food. You know, I think there's even a little bit of making, making clothing, making shoes. Um, the way people raise their kids is, um, I think, quite radical. And I, I'm not saying it's like a perfect culture in any sense, but I think um, there's definitely, there's definitely not, the, the natural wine movement will continue and it'll still be, it'll still have ethics at its core and um, hopefully that same sense of like partying will will always be there <laughs> so over here we'll keep the party going with some more on australian wine at everydaydrinking.com so the life in adelaide hills that rachel singer describes is kind of amazing but, you know, for those of us who are stuck here in the United States, when we need an Australian wine fix, sometimes we have to go to, to a place like, uh, I don't know, Jersey City. It's not exactly the kind of place that you would think you'd find Australian wine, but there's a little restaurant called Frankie that's run by Roan McDermott and his partner, Rebecca Johnson. And um, it's be, kind of become my go-to place over the years for learning about Australian natural wine. So a few weeks ago, Juicebox Beth and I met there, and Rowan took us through a really cool tasting of some special Australian natural wines. Cheers, man. Cheers, cheers. Welcome cheers. to Frankie. Yes, it's nice to be back in Frankie. I haven't been here in probably a little over a year. It's nice to be back in Jersey City. And a particularly large year and a bit 
distance, I feel like, more than just the accumulation of time. Yes. Completely different uh, world and restaurant space when you were last here. You picked the dreariest day to do this. It's very gloomy, very rainy, and then we walked in here, and it's just so happy feeling. Well, that's then it's doing its job. The design's doing its job. If on a particularly dreary day, you're picking up that it's bright and colourful in here, then, then it's working. Nailed it. Perfect. In Australia, restaurant design is very almost mixed in a mixture of like Scandinavian and beach culture. Things tend to be lighter, tan wood, stripped back, um, that type of feel. So that's what we brought in here. And then Sydney, where I'm from, has a lot of Art Deco influence to it. Okay. So how would you describe Frankie? Uh, I would describe Frankie as a neighbourhood restaurant uh, or an Australian restaurant, which is a term we're constantly trying to figure out exactly what that means. Australian as a as a culture or as a cuisine is a pretty broad umbrella to work under, which is perfect for us. It means uh, we can span from doing uh, kind of colonial roots in you know English cooking like fish and chips and meat pies to more modern day Southeast Asian influence and flavors in our food. And then uh, our other big love is natural wine. So we we don't discriminate on where we get wine from. We love getting as much Australian wine here as possible. But we, uh, as long as it's on the sustainable, natural tip, and we have, uh, we're happy to have it here. I mean, that's something I think, um, you know, over the years I've come to rely on, you know, this place as like, you know, kind of learning about Australian mm-hmm. natural wines. And I mean, so there's always yeah. been a commitment to that on the list. Man, absolutely. I think you know we're we're lucky enough to to get quite a lot of Australian wine in the states. It's surprising to me how much natural australian wine is here uh that you can get your hands on and how good it is you know when you're back in australia it is a lot of the same wines that we're lucky to have at frankie that you're getting at your really good restaurants and natural wine spots there which is cool maybe before we start the tasting i mean maybe maybe take us through like when did this all start to happen like natural wine in australia i mean it yeah i mean it's wine in australia became got its notoriety especially overseas as big heavy robust um wines which were you know some of them are excellent but the kind of similar story of california getting a little bit too out there and extracted and and high alcohol with their wines there's a little bit of a parallel to that in australia um history of australian wine was fortified wines was all anyone made about 120 years ago and then slowly they started moving towards making, you know, the wine that we drink today. Um, you know, standouts being Shiraz, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay were really the, the wines that from Australia hit the world market probably 30 years ago. And then maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, Australian wine started to get kind of a bad name. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's on the tip of your tongue like it, it's almost about to say it yellowtail is like the one wine that <laughs> I didn't know we were gonna left, say it. <laughs> left left australia and he kinda, said it not me <laughs> particularly in the u.s just you know i wouldn't nothing destroys the name of australian wine but was really what everyone thought of, of australian wine as being mass-produced you know inoculated heavy full of you know chemical and fake oak and all, all these type of things you know in australia the wine wasn't like that it's that's what's getting exported and what people build a market around so you know from that you know the the light at the end of that tunnel is you now have the australian wines that you're drinking now which are scaled back in terms of extraction 
um, I wouldn't say flavor, but alcohol and the amount of, um, you know, skin contact and things like that in the wines is just a little bit pared back. Yeah. Uh, low to no intervention in the winemaking process. So you're not smashing it with whole heaps of sulfur. You're not adding stabilizers. You're not adding acids to balance out, you know, poor fruit quality and things like that. And you're left now with this wine industry that is, you know, booming. It's, it's amazing. In Australia, the quality of wine is as good as anywhere you find in the world. Perfect. So, man, the first one we're drinking today is uh, from a winemaker called Joshua Cooper. He's a, a young guy in, in Australia in Victoria making um, some really incredible wines. This one in particular is a Chardonnay. It's Captain Creek Vineyard Chardonnay, um, which, you know, touching on what we said before, in the past you'd think with Australian Chardonnay, a particularly big, oaky, buttery Chardonnay, this wine, uh, like a lot of the Chardonnays that are getting made now by by uh, natural winemakers in Australia, I wouldn't say it's not meek, it's not steely, it's not like there's none of that characteristic of just you know a little bit of oak and a little bit of um, you know roundness to it. But there's there's a kind of neon quality that just shoots straight through the wine. It's from a really cold climate, probably one of the coldest places in australia yeah where is victoria so victoria is the, the for those of us that are yeah well, our geography of australia is not is like, not too high yeah. man we're talking the southeast of australia so um you know the more south the very southeast corner of australia this the area this is from in particular so victoria has has a, a colder climate than a lot of the rest of australia to begin with um where this is from in particular is the coldest wine region in australia so you're talking like it's got some real locked in tightness and freshness to the wine it's not getting excessive amounts of sun and and everything that some other wine regions in australia are getting so i just think there's a little kind of there's a a line that runs through this like a kind of laser beam that's really tasty that kind of cuts through the the slightly bigger rounded uh, flavor of the wine as well so what do you think what do you think this is fantastic. It's like something that I just want to share with people. Um, <clears throat> like, I think when people think of, as we spoke about before, Australian Chardonnay, they do not think of this. And this is just something that I just want to show people. And uh, I, I think this is like a, like people, people would love this. So, but it's interesting. It's one of these ones like we've talked about. There's like, there's natty and there's natural, right? This is not natty. This is not natty. Right, right. No. Not natty, yeah. You no, know, I, yeah. I think you're right. I think there is, there is, you know, two distinct versions of what people think natural wine is. There is the wines that are, you know, oxidative, um, cloudy, cloudy. You know, pretty out there. And some of those wines are great. They they have a, a place that sometimes I, I think, especially after working, I'm like, oh. I crave those kind of wines, those refreshing, almost a cocktail of wine is, is what it reminds me of. This, I would say, is not not necessarily like an old-school winemaking profile or flavour, but there's an elegance to it. There's something yeah. that's maybe you could say is a little bit more refined than, uh, than some other natty wines you might have. I think what stands out in this wine for me, other than obviously just the pure enjoyment of it, something we don't always talk about, the mouthfeel of wine, it has that really nice coating oiliness that you might find from you'd think kind of northern europe northern france type yeah. wines it has that 
but then there's this distinct Australian tropical freshness to it. Mm. And those combinations are really unique. I don't think there's many place in, places in the world you find that combination of roundness, kind of luscious mouthfeel, and then a real passion fruit, kiwi kind of kick to it at the end as well. You know why we don't talk about mouthfeel that often, right? No. because No, because the minute you bring it up to someone who's not like in the wine bubble, they're like... <laughs> Mouthfeel. Oh, it's yeah, right. It may, maybe it sound, maybe no, it sounds he, a little lofty. When he says it with the accent, I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just when you say it, Jason. Yeah. I think I think it adds to the, to what the enjoyment is. You know, like if yeah, you totally. if you drink sparkling wines or pet nuts, that burst of bubbles, that 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 sensation is half the fun of of uh, of drinking it. So you know, you can find that in, in still wines as well. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. But I, what I love about this is you can feel the characteristics of Chardonnay, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a Chardonnay. There's totally, it, yeah. but it's got such good acidity. It's, you know, it's, it's not, right, it's not cloying. It's not heavy. You know, no. it's not, yeah. I can just keep drinking this. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, Joshua Cooper, who makes this wine, you know, is probably all of 30 years old, if he's a day. He's someone that's worked in, you know, multiple vintages in different wineries, some particularly very good wineries around Australia. Um, and, you know, is making wine that has such a direction to it. You know, like, I know it's not, it's not, I feel like there was not a, let's just see what happens to this wine. It's like a very thought out, you know, let's make a wine that has this distinct personality of uh, where it's from in Western Victoria and, you know, what his personality is in winemaking. So is this typical of Chardonnay in Victoria or is it? Yeah, I mean, it would be... Uh, you know, more typical of Chardonnay coming from the colder climates in Australia. Mm-hmm. The other big, one, another big Chardonnay producing area in Western Australia, the Margaret River. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're going to be a little bit more fuller, yeah. um, you know, without sounding negative, flabbier maybe because they're <laughs> full of all that sunshine and, and dry heat. I mean, is flabby ever a positive? Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a good flabby now. They're, they're, they're a larger expression of, of Chardonnay or a more traditional Australian expression of Chardonnay. I think this is, yeah, just a little bit, you know, racier, a little bit more kind of uh, leanness to it than some of those other ones. Macedon Ranges, which is not far from, from where this is, is absolutely beautiful part of the world. And is you know that famous for that kind of cold climate uh, chardonnay and wine producing i think it's hard for people to realize that there are cool climate area mm. regions in australia i just think of it well, as probably hot. not if you yeah. live in australia but like for americans okay you mean, yeah, yeah. okay i'm no, well, let me let me rephrase i think it's hard for <laughs> americans to think of cool climate chardonnays from australia yeah but i thought it was interesting because it's obviously like the southern part is the cold part, right? Yeah, 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 sure. The southern part is is the the colder part of Australia. The yeah. further north you go, the more tropical and and you know hotter it gets. Wrap your mind around that. Makes sense. All right. So what what do we have? What's the what is the next wine that you've you're next, pouring for us here yes. today? Yeah. So still in Victoria, uh, the Yarra Valley. Um, the Yarra is a, a river that's kind of the lifeblood of, of a lot of the wine regions in Victoria. Uh, this wine in particular is from a winery called Boba. Uh, Sally and Tom Belford are the two winemakers there um, and they produce this Syrah which probably you know for people who drink Syrah a lot you think of, of a particular peppery deeper kind of wine this one goes against that grain it's light bodied we're drinking it straight out of the fridge today we serve it at Frankie like that as a chilled red wine 
Um, and it still has a, you know, that, that little bit of spicy kind of curry flavors going on in it, but it's particularly light bodied and you wouldn't call it a rosé, but it's something in the middle of those two worlds. It's not quite a light bodied red. It's not quite a rosé. It's just in this weird, wonderful world of its own. Yeah. The color is amazing. It's like, uh, ruby almost look not, not that I want to associate it with a, a cough drop, but yeah. But it is a jaw dropper when you smell it. My jaw yeah, dropped. Yeah. Well, you were talking before about, you know, natural versus natty. The scent of this has a natty, a little bit of barnyard, bit yeah. of kind of animal fur yeah. scent to it. But when you taste it, it's, it's not it's not out there. It's not oxidated, oxidized. It doesn't have a oh, fizz man. to it or anything like that. No, no. I mean, the balance of this is incredible. Yeah. The fruit, the mineral, Flowers. the sort of the flower. Yeah, everything. It's this. I love this one. This is a... I love this wine. Yeah, this is great. So, but it's interesting. Okay, so we we've come to know that most Syrah from Australia is Shiraz. That's what that's Shiraz, what it's yeah, called. Yeah. And so, but this one is actually labeled Syrah, like the French way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, is that uh, like a purposeful thing? I, I would say so. You know, without you know knowing exactly what the winemaker was thinking, I would say it's to set itself aside from what Yarra Valley or Australian Shiraz traditionally is, which is. Yeah, which is what? The biggest yeah. wines in the world. Yeah, which is the heavy, heaviest, <laughs> yeah. you know, peppiest, spiciest. Hangover special. Yeah. Hangover special, yeah. You know, there are Australian Shiraz is, is a very unique wine and they're absolutely amazing. I think yeah. that there's some incredible ones, but this is so far removed from what traditional Australian Shiraz is. It's pretty understandable of putting the label Syrah on there instead. I think there are, I've, in the past, I've kind of heard people say that Shiraz is warm climate. Syrah is called Shiraz and cooler climate is called Syrah. I don't, I'm not sure about all that. I think Australia just probably chooses its own names for things from time to time and Shiraz stuck. Or that's just how it was pronounced for many years and, and it's, it's gone on like that. If you, if you ever see a, get a chance to see some vineyards that grow Shiraz in Australia, depending on where the place is, they look like small trees. They're so... The, the vines on them are amazing. They're, they're really quite distinct looking um not like there's nothing wispy about the vines or how they grow they're really almost tree trunk like a lot of the shiraz uh vines there so what do you think i love this this is exactly what i love drinking and what made me fall in love with wine wine? this is a juice box back (laughs) wine i don't think i've ever had a chilled syrah this is a first for me really yeah yeah and how do you feel about that? I feel good about it. It's like, like we said, it's super refreshing, but it's so complex. Like there's mm-hmm. every time I put my nose back in, there are more, you know, weird flavors that I love. Like I get this like, like prickly rose, like, but also these like, um, like fresh fruits, like boysenberries, cranberries. And then like this weird barnyardy to it as that little yeah that yeah. distinct kind of in a really enjoyable mm. way that little bit of yeah, musky floor kind of yeah as you said barnyard yeah but i think it's more like it's almost like yeah but it's it's that little bit of humanness to it right it's mm-hmm. like it's like it's it's not mm. barnyard it's like i don't know it's like human odor i don't know you yeah, know what i mean sure. yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> does that make any sense it does yeah, no, yeah. No, it's in balance you yeah. know it's like no, something it's yeah. attractive it's you it's know, so attractive yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i think that's that's maybe a, a something that with natural wine when you first start 
trying some expressions and natural wine is hard for people to get onto because there is an attractiveness to this this rotten kind of out there scent and flavor but you can't stop thinking about it it draws you back in time and time again the first bit of it you might go especially if you've drunk a lot of wine in the past you go oh, what, the what is that that's that's turned or it's not bad but for some reason you keep kind of going it just draws your mind back again and again it's just getting used to that little bit different personality in wine that maybe you haven't tried before totally that's what i love about natural wine where it, you just don't know what to expect and mm -hmm. whereas you know studying for the wset you expect this and that and that and if you don't find it they're like oh we'll put your nose in deeper because it's in there <laughs> and so you know and that's, that, that's why yeah that's why i love natural wine because you know there's kind of like this grittiness that um this like imperfection that is so attractive and um yeah just really refreshing all right so what are we drinking next so next up is uh year wines which is a winery in mclaren vale in south australia uh this is their 2017 mataro uh mclaren vale the the region is you know one of the most recognizable wine regions in australia makes really award-winning wine. The most probably well-known is places like Penfolds and Henschke yeah. that make some of the, you know, the not only the best, but also some of the most expensive wines in the world uh, that you can get. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mataro, this, this wine, the Mataro from Year Wines, is a, a smaller production wine. So Mataro, huh, right? Mm -hmm. Mataro, yeah. Also known as Mavedra. So one thing I would like you to get into a little more is like what, so, I mean, have you had a lot of more... Mataro from no, not at all. When I think of Mataro or Morvedra, I think of southern France. I think of like yeah, you know that kind of. Really so it's just a blending grape, shape. really. It's just a blending grape in Australia. Yeah, yeah. In, in Australia, GSM is is a is a very common with especially a uh, famous one is Torbrek, which is a great winemaker in South Australia. Yeah, they make some amazing um, uh, wine called the Steeding and different ones, which are GSM. They're Grenache, Shiraz, or Syrah and Morvedre. And I just had never actually heard of it called Mataro before. Uh, I didn't realize it's the same grape. But that's a common blend, the three of them, balancing each other out. Uh, in Australia with blending, I think, you know, blending wine in general is always about finding the right balance, right? I think in other parts of the world, it's about adding flavor to wines. Sometimes, it's particularly with red wine, you're trying to balance out a softness with an earthiness with a heaviness. In Australia, quite often with blending wines, I find it's just to take the heat off how powerful the red wines are. Yeah. So, you know, adding something like Sauvignon to Shiraz or Cabernet is not, is quite common. You know, it's a different approach to blending wine. You're not trying to add something to the wine. You're almost trying to balance it by taking something away. So I feel like this wine's a little... Eight atypical for your list at this percentage it's 15.1 percent yeah, yeah yeah for sure this would yeah. be atypical for what we serve at frankie yeah absolutely yeah. but we i love this winery and when it's a uh, it's nice to have a full spectrum of what australian wine can be um yeah. and what natural wine can be you know because people do you know that that love of you know deep heavy wines is a very personal thing and it's it's something that once you you know when i first started drinking wine Anything from Europe to me tasted like it was watery. 
It was like, mm. it was not heavy enough. It had no personality. You mean as someone who grew up in Australia drinking Growing up in Australia, oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Australian wine, whenever I would taste anything from France, I'd be like, ah, oh, it's just tastes like water it doesn't taste like wine to me and it took quite a lot of time to to realize that you your senses were being overpowered by you know other other flavors or just you were so used to drinking certain wines and i don't know what it is about wine that when you find what you like there's a tendency to only drink that you you know it's a very common thing i you hear it all the time in the restaurant i only like this kind of wine and you know i was exactly like that i only liked australian Cabernets, Shiraz and Chardonnay. The, butter, the bigger the better. And that was it for a long time. And then through just sheer being around restaurants and wine and travelling and things, you develop more taste of different wines and you get you understand the value and the importance of other wines. Mm. And you just you can some eventually now you completely shift it on its head. And what you think is the wine you like is completely different from five, six years ago. And, uh, you know, back to your point of drinking a wine that's maybe a little bit atypical of what we usually serve at Frankie, that's, that's the, the fun of having an extensive wine list is people can tell you, I only like, uh, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon from California. Here's a Mataro, also known as Moved, we've just found out, <laughs> from Australia that couldn't yeah. be more, you know, further away or a different varietal than a Cab Sav from California, but it would sit perfectly well on a table with people that have that idea of I only drink this from this part of the world. 100%. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think there's this concept of like these loud wines or noisy wines that, you know, are oaky or maybe high alcohol that kind of grab your attention and that's how you, you remember them and you think you like them. But then mm-hmm. there's these like quiet wines that like kind of whisper to you that yep. you're kind of like, oh, these are bland. But then when you actually kind of sit with them, I think that's those are the wines that you like you want to hang out with yeah. you know and it works for people too right i mean i know exactly right there's like yeah it's not super in your face like as i think i've said like 18 times we need to edit this <laughs> so well integrated <laughs> but um people love this like i have a friend who loves oaked wine just anything with like vanilla flavoring yeah. she seems to love she would freaking love this you know and so it's um i think it's a nice like stepping stone into natural wine for people who do like big yeah. oaked wines because that's a, that's a thing. Yeah, I think I, that's that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, the idea of something being integrated, like you're saying, it's just a. I think that's good winemaking process when things are harmonious together, when you're not notice, when you can distinctly tell there's different flavors and and uh, you know moments in the wine, but they're not harshly different from each other Mm. it's not like you're taking a sip and you're like the first thing you get is acid and then the last thing you get is you know a berry fruit flavor that they're all working together that's that's great winemaking that's good growing that's good agriculture that just means they're all harmoniously growing and living together which is Mm. the best thing in wine totally this is okay so this is a natural wine right but this is an australian wine to me this is like an australian red wine Mm -hmm. like of I mean, someone who really like maybe came of age drinking this kind of stuff, they would still recognize yeah. this as an Australian red. Yeah, absolutely. As, yeah. A, disti- as a distinctly um, earthy, almost an arid quality to the wine. Yeah, uh, I think this has South Australia written all over it. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is 
I, I think that's like kind of cool. And I think that's like maybe where we keep talking about like this is where natural wine is going, right? You know, it's like where. Well, it, well, let, let me put it yeah. this way. I think sometimes there's a, a thought that natural wine, even though it's a hands off approach, and it should be that through that, you're getting a distinct idea of what a place is. But quite often with natural wine, it's more about who the winemaker is or the labeling of the wine and these these different attributes the branding the, bra- yeah. the branding and and the the style the wine is taking so whether it's a an orange wine or a mato or, or whatever it might be or a pet nut all these kind of terms and types of wines are really synonymous with with natural wine in particular but sometimes through all that people get more into the version of the wine is than actually where it's from or just what it might be. So in what you're saying, you know, natural wine, Mataro, South Australia, really get that sense of, of Australian red wine in this, which is, you know, above and beyond what all those other processes might be or that's really the distinct thing. This is a, a, a brooding kind of powerful... Australian and that's wine. what I really like about it. And I think that... Because I think one thing that happened... At this point in the tasting, Rowan moved us on to Adelaide Hills, which of course we've heard from rachel signer is really the locus of natural wine in australia i mean adelaide hills which is a little bit different from from the less from the rest of the wine producing areas in in south australia like mclaren vale barossa the most well-known areas i feel like adelaide hills is like the the kind of misfits area but is it? It's like it's the locus of natural wine in Australia, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Adelaide Hill. Yeah. You know, if you think in in European terms for natural wine, Loire Valley, parts of Bergen, Austria, Austria, yeah, yeah like um, like parts of Beaujolais, you, you think natural yeah, wine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Adelaide Hills is that for, yeah, right. in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, from like a outsider perspective like what's it like there because i all like a ton of the natural wine i drink is from adelaide hills and i just try to picture it and i i can't so we think of european uh wine regions like rolling vineyards and Mm. all this type of stuff adelaide hills looks nothing like that adelaide hills is mixture of it almost looks it's uh use a term in australia i know it's the same hinterland like it's almost almost like forest rainforest a mixture of the two um in australia the area that's maybe like uh you know five miles from the coast has this topography and and climate of a mixture of a rainforest and a forest and is commonly called hinterland but that's what adelaide hills feels like Mm. it's got a temperate climate that is during the summer very hot in the winters little bit wet and cooler and and you know a lot more a lot more moisture around but if for wine that can mean a really good thing when you have really hot days and cool nights oh, you yeah. get really strong robust wine grapes yeah preserve the acidity all right so what are we drinking next we're drinking uh a coat of barrels fugazi grenache So for our last wine, Rowan poured something very special from Okoda Barrels from the late winemaker Terrace Okoda, who um, passed away back in October of 2020. 
Um, and this was the Fugazi bottling that was named after the song by Fugazi that was playing when he and his wife found the vineyard where this was made. So maybe, maybe talk a little bit about the winemaker who I think passed away this year. He yeah. did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Taras passed away about six, six, seven months ago, um, which is you know, you know, very upsetting. It, it was un, he's a young man, unexpected, yeah, uh, yeah, passing very away, very tragic, yeah, tragic passing away. And his influence on you know, in particular Australian winemaking is insurmountable. He he really is the uh, someone who brought an elegance to natural wine in Australia. Um, and opening this one, it's almost a thought-blocking exercise because everything stops at this. I think this is the best Australian Grenache you can you can get or ever have, and you know if not that in the world. And it almost brings you to a point where you're like, wow, this is so unique of a wine. The Fugazi, you know, Chota Barrels Grenache is just it's that mixture of chocolate, which you know chocolate and Grenache are you know one in a hand in hand. But then there's certain kind of silky salinity to it, which is so unique and and uh, just very special wine, man. It it's uh it's an incitement and it's exciting and enjoyable to to drink, mixed in with a little bit of obviously you know a heavy heart, knowing uh, that you know Taurus isn't around anymore and and how special a person he was. I, I can't go, can't say more than than how much of an amazing person he was to to an Australian winemaking scene. Like, why do you think these wines, I mean, I feel like a Cota Barrel is, is like, it's part of the, the tribe of the original kind of pioneering natural wine producers, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in, yeah. A, in Australia and, and worldwide. In the worldwide. Yeah, worldwide, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I agree. Um, you know, why that is, is a, it's almost a question for, a, for someone studying society of why certain things gravitate towards people and certain other things do. Don't, sorry. Uh, while I think you and I spoke about this a while ago, talking about cult winemakers and, and different wineries that hit a mark in more than others do and why that is. You, you know, I had to say it's maybe an accessibility to the wine that excites people. Like, it, this Grenache is so... Without being in any ways boring... It's familiar. There's a, I don't know, there's a comforting essence to this wine that I get. It's not weird or strange or um, funky. Like, it's what they would call clean, I guess, but it's complex and layered, and um, at the end of the day, it's, like, just so drinkable, too. Like, yeah. it's just very special. Sure. It, 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 is, it's definitely, it is definitely all those things, and I think... Because this wine is not like it is all those things like you just said. It, it's you know it's drinkable, it's uh you know it's a very enjoyable wine obviously. But there it is a wine of depth. It's a wine of character. It's a wine of of you know immense personality to it. But for you to just to to really sit back and enjoy it on a just a pure sensory level, it's approachable. It is not making you go what fuck what is that what is that dark fruit in the back of my mouth why does that linger so long what is that first bit of thing that hits my mouth it, it doesn't necessarily have all those things but there is a pure enjoyment and a comfort to it mm. that does not negate its complexity and and how you know well designed and and gro well grown and made a wine it is and i think that's 
why his wines have become so popular. I think the key word is familiarity. Yeah. Like, you know, it is, it's, it's got depth, but it's familiar and it's like, you know, relatable almost, you know, like it's not weird in any way. I just, I think with this, it, with, with his wines in particular, they, they are, they don't stop at the idea of familiarity. They don't stop at the idea yes. of, oh, this is what I know. They of. begin there, though. They, they begin, begin there. there. Yeah, it's yeah. a very good way to put it. They, yeah. they start right there of knowing, like, oh, okay, this is a this, this is a South Australian Grenache. And then from there, it's a gateway. It just kind of flows from there on being a complete enjoyable consumption of, of uh, flavor and, and enjoyment of drinking. Yeah. So well said. Yeah, this wine I smell strawberries, but they're like it's like dusted in like cocoa, and then I I, I yeah it's it's still very bright too. So yeah. I don't want to say like chocolate because people might think that's dark and heavy, but it's just so light it's on not, its toes. It, ha- it has it has you know bitter is very rarely a good quality in in food and wine, but when you think of like really good amaros, that bitter quality, you mm. think of like certain kind of certain Japanese and Chinese cooking that uses bitter as a really good flavor. This has that dark bitter chocolate-ness to it. Like just at the back of your throat, there's just a little kind of tightness that clicks in there that I think is really unique to this Grenache. Because sometimes they're quite, they're long and engrossing Grenache, Australian Grenache in particular. They can be, they're soft and palatable, but they kind of linger for a long time on. Well, I think in general, like I'm always, I'm often very disappointed in Grenache. Like it's, it's just too much fruit. Like I mean, it's yeah, this yeah. is what you know. You're right. This is like one of the finest Grenache. I come to. I mean, I, every time I taste this, I think the same thing. It's like one of the best Grenache in the world for sure. I yeah. can't think of, of yeah. You know, his wines in particular travel along slightly different trajectory. I think of of natural wine in Australia. He has a. a a wine called Slint Chardonnay, which is just, you know, really along Chablis terms. I would put it up there with any any uh, crew Chablis you could get is is just as good. And um, yeah, you know, he, it's a it's quite heartfelt drinking his wines. And I will say, even before you know knowing about him passing away, his wines were still heartfelt. When I drank his wines three, four years ago, I was like kind of had a similar emotive feeling that I have now having them, which is, you know, not hyperbole, just really think that a lot about his wines that they kind of make you kind of stand in your place and go, fuck, this is good, just for the pure enjoyment of them. These are absolutely amazing wines. We've talked before about the OG of natural wines, the OGs of natural wines, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Wow. I could imagine he this would. This is one. Yeah. Would, yeah, yeah hands down. Yeah. And you know, it was a, a, um, a, you know, an amazing positive to come out of this story. His wife Amber, who's a great winemaker in her own right, mm-hmm. uh, she made a wine called called Home, which is a Pinot Noir under a Cote de Barrels uh, name, which was amazing. I've had once or twice before, which was absolutely amazing. She's carrying on their tradition and, and is going to continue the Cote de Barrels label and keep making wines mm. from from uh you know the plots they make wines from now which i can't wait to to try those as well and, yeah yeah and see the story continue man i i think it's uh it's really a you know a tragic passing but the st- also the start of something really special for a coat of barrels going forward 
people talk about small batch. This small, is pretty small batch, right? Small batch, yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of wine, about six and a half thousand bottles, I think, of, of this wine in particular. But each wine is is labelled that way to let you know you're you're drinking one a certain bottle that's not in a production line sort of sense that you're mm. drinking one of you know a unique vintage of wine and something that's not forever and i don't think he means that in a precious sense that's what i get from that labeling it's not like hey you've got number four thousand of six six thousand and five hundred bottles yeah i think it's meant to mean enjoy this wine it's special but it's disposable you it's can't get it again you can't get it again and it's the same it's a you know a punk rock essence that you know like I think that labeling sense with his wines to let you know like this isn't lasting forever these wines this is the amount of it and you got some of it doesn't mean you should think of it as some precious thing you got to cherish forever fucking enjoy it drink it open it think about it for as long as you want to think about it and then put it away and move on to the next one you know that's that's the sense I get that's from the that punk label. aesthetic yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah, yeah, what yeah, I get yeah. from this because it's not like you know, looking at the back of the bottle, it's it's punched almost like a serial label onto it. Yeah. This is number three hundred of X. It's not like written in a you know manner of you need to absolutely cherish this wine. It's like no, man, enjoy it. This is what it is, and this is the amount that we have, and this is what exists until next year when hopefully we go through the same process and this will exist again. It's sort of like life. <laughs> We were all sitting here waiting, thinking of it, thinking it, I had to say it. You only get one. Everyday Drinking is presented by the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network, produced by Jason Wilson and co-produced and edited by Miles O'Brien. Additional contributions from Beth Kamadas. Special thanks to Rowan McDermott and Rachel Signer. Music in this episode from the EP Mementos by Ages. Check out our newsletter at everydaydrinking.com. We'll talk to you next week. Cheers.